if you're a nine that can shoot 73, I'll take you for a partner any day. I'll make all the pars. You just keep keep making all those birdies. We'll be good. Well, yeah, but then I'll show you the 93s that go along with the 73s. And you, may <laughs> want to, you, you may want to reconsider this entire strategy. This season of Half Forgotten History, we're partnering with Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. I love the Sprinter Van. It's always a smooth ride, whether I'm headed to the course to play around or to the stadium for a really good tailgate. And just like the world-class athletes we talk to on the show, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans go the extra mile. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. Season three, we're going the extra mile thanks to our friends at Mercedes-Benz and their Sprinter Vans. And we're talking a lot of golf and a run-up to the Masters. And our guest this week is a guy who knows what it's like not only to be a major champion, but also is the only guy in the history of the PGA Tour who can say, I shot a 58, what did you do? Oh, by the way, he's also the only guy in the history of the PGA Tour that has two sub-60 rounds, and he's a massive Steelers fan. None other than the guy with the weirdest but most perfect swing on tour, Jim Furyk. Jim, I have to ask, straight off the top, if you had your druthers, would we be talking golf for the next 45 minutes or about your beloved Steelers? Well, I'd probably split it 50-50. How's that? Perfect. I'm nervous about the Steelers, so I, I don't know. It's hard to talk about right now. Yeah, it's it's been a weird offseason. Uh, they kept Ben yes. and they got Juju back, but they lost everybody on defense. Yeah, the, so. the defense is is hurting. So uh, we'll see. I guess the, we'll definitely go with that next man up theory and, and see how uh, see how they plug it in. It's interesting, and the reason I wanted to ask that question, I think it was either 2014 at Hoylake or 2015 at the Open at St. Andrews. And I like to go out there and sort of walk the course when you guys are out there practice days before the tournament starts, get a feel of the course, talk to players about how the course was playing. And I was following you, I think it was at St. Andrews in 2015, and I was asking you about the greens and, you know, how the course was in shape. And and you said, yeah, but tell me how the Steelers are going to do. I'm like, okay, we can have this conversation. There you go. That's yeah. what I knew. You were a huge Steelers fan. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even in the middle of summer. But it felt like it felt like football weather. We were at St. Andrews of Hoylake. So there you go. It, it absolutely had a little Christmas into the air. No question about it. There is. Your resume is incredible, right? You were an All-American at Arizona, Varden Trophy winner, PGA Player of the Year, PGA Tour Player of the Year, FedEx champion, U.S. Open champion, Payne Stewart Man of the Year recipient. But I, I guess the coolest thing for you to say would be like, hey, I shot a 58 on a PGA Tour event. <laughs> you ever done that? Like, that's your card, right? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. You know, when I first started playing the tour, I was kind of known for a guy that played tough courses really well, kind of a U.S. Open style player, yeah. grind it out, you know, make pars when you have to. And uh, it's funny, like three of my first four wins were in Las Vegas where I shot 25, 28, and 29 under. So I was kind of comfortable with either type of setup, uh, you know, whether you had to make a bunch of birdies or a bunch of pars. So to go out there kind of late in my career, I shot 59 for the first time at age 43, and then I shot 58 at age 46. So kind of a nice feather in the cap late in your career. And uh, it'll it'll be a record that gets broken. Someone's going to shoot 58. Someone's going to shoot 57 uh, eventually. Uh, hopefully, Mr. Guyberger got to kind of hold on to that for, I think it was 39 years before I shot yeah. 58. It'd be pretty cool to hold on to it for another 39 years and uh, and have someone break that record. So uh, I don't think it's going to last that long, but uh, it's, it's a little fun little thing I have right now. Yeah, for people that don't know, that's the lowest round ever shot on tour. And it's like, I always think of that like uh, Larry Ellison of Oracle bought the island of Lanai. So, like, when he goes to the Billionaire Boys Club, his card is, I got a Hawaiian island. What do you got? 
And I, you know, I, I would imagine that yours is, yeah. Hey, that's cool that you want all that. You ever shot a 58? All right, uh, boom, drop it and leave. Um, yeah. Well, you know, like when you sit in the locker room, everyone kind of has their, their thing, you know, and Mickelson yeah. may talk about six majors, but you know, like if Jack or Tiger walk in, everyone kind of shuts up. You really don't have much to say at the end of the day. <laughs> right. So I don't think they're too worried about that 58. I, I kind of keep my mouth shut and move on. And as I said, uh, I'm more quiet about it. I, you know, I don't really have to talk about it. It's out there. I love it. One of the best comments I'd ever heard is a player walked up to me on tour and said, you know, one of the coolest things you could tell people if you wanted to is say, I have I have shot the lowest round on tour, lower than anyone else ever has, twice. He said, no, no one can say that. So the fact that I, I broke 60 twice is kind of a, uh, a fun little thing. And we, we have a charity golf tournament in town in Jacksonville, and, and our theme one year was sub-60. So uh, we kind of gave everyone uh, the logo for the year was sub-60, and I and, uh, thought that was kind of a fun little, uh, fun little memento. Hey, listen, as a friend of mine once said, when you have the opportunity to stunt, stunt. And uh, two below 60 and the lowest round ever, absolutely, is something you should stunt at. But it does bring in the conversation, right? Because I, I've, I've had this debate. Like, the 58 was on a par 70, so it was 12 under par. On a Sunday, by the way. Uh, but then if you shoot a 59 on a par 72, that's 13 under. So how do you sort of go about that discrepancy? David Duvall is a great friend. He likes to remind me that his 59 <laughs> was minus 13. Right. That, uh, both, both of my rounds are minus 12. So, uh, yeah, that, there's a reminder of that all the time. Uh, I would say when, when you're talking about great rounds of golf, uh, I, I think you look at kind of the average score shot for a day. And then you also look at what was the next lowest round. The round that I shot in Chicago at 59, honestly – it was on a tougher day. I want to say the next best score that day was either 65 or 66. That was the best round of golf I shot. And, and just because it was so much lower than the average score that day, the golf course was playing actually pretty tough. The greens were dried out a bit. It was a windy day. Um, that, that was a day that honestly, uh, I look back that by far, that'll be my best round of golf I ever play. Everything went right. And I threw a three-putt bogey in the middle of it. Still shot 12 under and broke 60. So uh, just a lot of things went right. A lot of fun. And then uh, both rounds mirrored each other. Jumped out to like eight under on the first side of golf. And then it was kind of a mental battle on the back nine. And and uh, shot four under on the back. But, but kind of a, you know, I'm firing on all cylinders physically. But then you start fighting yourself. You know, you start yeah. for anyone out there. It's really not any different than trying to break 90 for the first time, 80 for the first time, 70 for the first time. Uh, those all happened a long, long, long time ago, you know, in my teens. So, uh, you know, years later in my 40s, I kind of hit that threshold again, trying to break 60. Well, it's funny you say that because the best round I ever shot was a 73 at Kapalua at the Bay Course, not the plantation. But I was yeah. one under through 12. And I texted my wife and I said, holy crap, I'm one under through 12. She goes, what are you doing? T turn off your phone. Concentrate. And I bogey, <laughs> and I bogey the next three holes. And I, I brought it back with a, with a couple of birdies on par fives. But that's the point, right? It is the yeah. when you start thinking about the score, then you become oh, your yeah. own worst enemy. Absolutely. So you're a pretty good stick. What's your handicap? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the worst. I'm a nine. Like, it's the worst you could be because well, half the time should, you hit the shots you want. Nine shoot 73. I mean, nine should shoot 73. Yeah. That's impressive. No, it was a good day. The winds were favorable, yeah. as, you're, as you are aware, as a former champion at Kapalui. The, when the well, winds are favorable, it can help. If you're a nine that can shoot 73, I'll take you for a partner any day. I'll make all the pars. You just keep 
keep making all those birdies. We'll be good. Well, yeah, but then I'll show you the 93s that go along with the 73s. And you, may <laughs> want, you, you may want to reconsider this entire strategy. Uh, but you you mentioned like the, the 59 you thought was your best round in terms of relation to where everybody else was. And that goes back to one of my favorite stats. Like I know that there will be more birdies at future U.S. Opens and that Rory holds the record at 18 under congressional in 2011. But there will never be a better round of or a better display of championship golf in my mind than the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble, where Tiger was 12 under and second place was three over par. To your point about that 59, that to me still resonates as the greatest display of championship golf I think I'll ever see. I agree. And I was paired with Tiger both on uh, Thursday and Friday for the first two rounds <laughs> that week. So, and I was scratching it out. I think I made the cut on the number. I was kind of scratching it out, but the control he had of the golf ball, both, you know, trajectory, curvature of the golf ball, right to left, left to right, uh, was incredible. And then anytime, I mean, you're going to get in trouble in the U S open once in a while, yeah. but, uh, I'll say this. I mean, Pebble beach is one of my favorite places to play golf, but when they dry those greens out there, you know, the ball's a little wobbly. It's not like, yeah. you know, running down a line where you can start lifting your putter up five feet short, knowing you made it. He, right. uh, you know, when he had to, he knocked in eight footers, 12 footers. I mean, he made par putts to kind of keep rounds going as well. But the control of the golf ball that I saw there at 2000 is probably the best ball striking display I've ever witnessed. Well, it's funny you say that because I had this debate with people like when, when Bryson won at what, six under last year at the U.S. Open and, and no one else broke par. And people were like, yeah, that's incredible. And I bring up the Tiger thing and their response was, yeah, but that was at Pebble. I'm like, well, wait a minute. You, th you think that it wasn't set up tough that no one else could get closer than three over? I mean, come on now. I, like, I'm not taking anything away from Bryson, but don't tell me it's the same as what he did when he beat everybody by 15 strokes. I shot 83 on Saturday in 2000. I remember it distinctly. Yeah. So it was set up pretty tough for me. That's what I remember. Yeah. Funny story. I finished that Saturday round with an 83 and I asked the officials, I said, what's the first tee time tomorrow? Cause I knew I was going to be in dead last in the field. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy said, oh, well, it's going to be around 7.30. And I handed him my card and he went, oh, yeah, it's, it's going to be 7.30. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I was like, all right. And he goes, would you like to play with a marker tomorrow? And I said, no, I'll be fine. And he goes, are you sure you don't want to play with a marker tomorrow? And I was like, no, no, I'm good. And he goes, well, we could get you a marker. And I finally, you know, my reply was, well, are you telling me that I need or I have right. to take a marker or are you telling us it's, it's my choice? He goes, well, no, it's your choice. And I said, well, then for the fourth time, I'll be fine. I'll just play by myself. And he goes, well, may I ask why? And I said, well, sir, I just shot 83 on that golf course. And I don't know who you're going to get to play with me tomorrow, but I don't want to see what they shoot on it tomorrow. I just want to get out there and finish my round as quick as possible and, and be done with it. So uh, I teed off at 8.30. I, tee, I, I hold out on 18 at exactly 10 o'clock. And oh. I was in, in Carmel at 10.20 having breakfast at Katie's, the greatest little uh, breakfast spot in town. So with my family. So we were laughing. I played a, played a U.S. Open round at a 10.20. I was having breakfast in Carmel. That's incredible. Like the, the, the first time I ever played Pebble, uh, we were there for some corporate event. ESPN had Pebble for half the day and Fox News Corp had it for the uh, second half of the day. And I was the designated, you know, idiot to hit on seven and, and try and hit the green and everyone try and match my shots. So there was a lull because they didn't do, you know, shotguns at that time. So we went out and, and walked the course in between the time the ESPN group was done and the Fox News Corp was done. We didn't see a golfer 
the caddy and I didn't see another golf course on the golf course until we got to the 13th hole. We finished in under three hours. And I thought that was incredible, but, yeah. but your, your speed round at the U S open in 2000 tops that for sure. It's amazing how I felt like I wasn't playing that fast because yeah. you do so much, you know, good golfers are prepared to play when they're ready, or at least fast golfers are, you know, you do a lot, you get your yardage, you pick your club, you think about the wind, you're prepared to hit when it's your turn. Well, I never thought about how much I did while the other players were hitting their shots. And now when it was just me out there by myself, I felt like I was playing slow. Like I was very aware of how long it was taking me to hit shots. Uh, poor fluff probably couldn't keep up to be honest with you, but uh, yeah, I mean, a, a single, you know, playing by yourself and with a caddy, I mean, you, you should be able to get around it you know, two and a half hours, as long as, uh, you know, as long as you can walk quick enough. There's nothing worse than slow play, whether you're playing on tour or whether you're playing with your buddies like that pace of play. I don't know. It's a, it's a thing like, like it, it really, it turns people away from the game. So my, my always thing is you can be as bad as you want. Just don't take forever being bad. That's sort of the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell my kids that when they start the game that no one really cares what you shoot, as long as you're fun to play with. And as long as you keep it moving, you know, you're a great partner. We all stink. Otherwise we'd be playing for money on Sunday. So let's just keep (laughs) this party going. The U S open's coming up in a little bit, but the masters is first major on the docket. So why don't we take a break here, come back with Jim Furyk and talk about uh, the masters and his experiences there. Stay with us. We're coming right back. You know, here on Half Forgotten History, our legends have racked up awards, including MVPs, championships, and Hall of Fame busts. And if you're looking for a credit card, you should probably want one that wins awards too. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best of Awards winner for 0% intro APR and balance transfer credit card. It provides a great way to pay for large purchases over time, as well as consolidating other card balances. And speaking of award winners, The U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best Credit Card for Dining Out or Ordering In. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. Get two times points on gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. And if you're into cashback or travel rewards, U.S. Bank has credit cards that feature those benefits as well. Check out the full suite of credit cards at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated, and the cards are available to U.S. residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Basketball teams are entering the final month of the regular season as they gear up for the playoffs. And while some teams are a lot to make it there, others are still fighting for their opportunity to chase the trophy this summer. And DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting you in the center of the action with a chance to turn $1 into $100 in free bets. Turning $1 into $100 is simple. Pick any basketball team, and if during the next game the team of your choosing hits a three, you win $100 in free bets. That's 101 odds on the team of your choosing to hit a three. They don't even need to win the game. This year teams have been hitting threes at an unprecedented pace, so get in on all the action with DraftKings Sportsbook before this offer ends. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code WINGO when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free bets if the basketball team of your choosing hits a three. That's code WINGO to turn $1 into $100 worth of free bets for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, New customers only and restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. 
And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Uh, back with Jim Furyk on this episode of Half Forgotten History. We're going the extra mile with Jim, as he did many times in his career. Thanks to our good friends at the Sprinter Van from Mercedes, as you can see. Lovely van park behind me. And you're going to take the extra mile and need the extra mile if you're going to win at Augusta the Masters. Now, you played there 20 times, made the cut 16 times at a couple of top four finishes. So you've obviously had decent success at, at Augusta. What is it about the course that stands out the most to you that people that have not played it or haven't been there would be shocked to know? Well, I'm going to say the same thing as everyone. When, when I started watching that golf tournament as a, say in high school, uh, there was no HD TV. So everything yeah. appears flat. You don't realize, uh, how much role there is to the terrain, how much elevation change there is on certain shots. And so the first thing when I went to play it, I had never played Augusta before, before I went to my first master. So first practice round was the weekend before the tournament. And I couldn't believe like how much undulation, not only in the greens, but just in the fairways and, and, yeah. and, uh, how beautiful the property is. So, uh, that, that's first and foremost, I guess the second, the golf course, since I started playing there, my first masters was 1996, the golf course now 25 years later, it's a completely different golf course. Uh, you know, the green complexes sit the same. The tee boxes are pretty much in the same spot, but they've been moved back. But it plays so much different. It's a lot more right. narrow now. They've planted a lot more trees. The strategy and the way you play the golf course is, is completely changed. And uh, it's just a different golf course. It's a much longer, more brutal beast. When I first started playing Augusta, you saw a lot of short hitters, the guys that didn't hit it that far were winning Augusta right. and they were doing it with their short game. You know, in the past, Nicholas dominated the course with length. And then as we got longer as players and the course hadn't changed, you saw some shorter hitters winning Augusta with wedge play, uh, chipping and putting, you know, your Ben Crenshaw's, your Zach Johnson's uh, modern day, but they lengthened that golf course out again. It's a beast. It's making it more and more difficult for the average length or even for the not bombing type of player to win that golf tournament so golf course has changed they tightened it up you kind of lose your angles you know it used to be that the fairways were really wide when i first started playing there the defense of the golf course was the firmness and the speed of the greens um the greens have become actually a lot more receptive they've actually i don't believe they're as quick as they used to be and as they've tightened it up you can't create some of those angles into the greens, you know, when the course was wide, you know, I, I wanted to sit back and tee, you know, and tee it up and hit it as hard as I could every hole. But I learned that, you know, I still needed to hit the ball very accurately on certain holes on 11. I had to hit it down the right side to get a good angle into the pin on seven, depending where the pin was, I'd hit it left or right, depending on what side the pin was. And, and so accuracy was really important for me to create angles into the greens. And you can't create those angles anymore because they've narrowed the golf course down. A lot of it's kind of the setup. What I'm always hoping for being, uh, I've never been, no secret, I've never been a long hitter. Uh, I, actually, I was way back in college, and then I kind of got <laughs> shorter and straighter uh, to play the tour. But what I'm hoping for is firm and fast fairways. I want that. I want no rain for weeks. I want that place to be bone dry. I want to see the ball rolling because I want to see the golf course play as short as it possibly can. And then when I look at wind conditions, there's certain holes uh, I really kind of want to see number one play into the wind. If the wind's going to yeah. be blowing, I want number one to be into the wind. That makes kind of too reachable, but that makes some of the holes like seven, 14, 17, some of the real problem area par fours, that makes them play downwind. That makes them play a lot easier. 
Uh, and also makes 13 and 15 play into the wind. It makes it a little bit more difficult. You think about the year that Zach Johnson won. Golf course was playing firm and fast. The breeze was blowing the exact same way that I'm talking about. And so, you know, they made a big deal out of he didn't go for any par fives, 13, 15. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, he couldn't reach 15. Um, I, I was playing that same year and I couldn't get to 15 because of the wind condition. So he wasn't laying up by strategy. He was laying up by default. And then he picked the course apart with his wedge game, putting, you know, hit the strengths of his game. So short hitters are kind of rooting for certain things on that golf course. And when I get there and it's been raining a lot and the wind's coming from the wrong direction, I know it's going to be a tough week. It is so dependent on, on the weather in that situation on how that course is going to play. You're right. Fast and firm would be really, really fun because it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Um, is there, a, was there a master's moment for you? Like, was there one moment where you were like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen, or this is why I love the game, or this is why I love this tournament. Is there one of those things that, that sort of solidified that for you? I, I think I fell in love with the masters as a 16 year old watching Nicholas win in 86. So yeah. I can remember where I was at, you know, watching it in the 19th hole at my local club in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and, and uh, you know, rooting for Jack and, you know, it was everyone's hero and Norman down the stretch, Seve down the stretch, just kind of everyone started kind of falling off and, and, and Jack hit all the great shots kind of down the stretch to win the tournament. So uh, that, that's probably a, you know, a great memory for me, for me personally, I would say uh, MO won in 98 and I had a good chance uh, to win that golf tournament and a little bit of heartbreak down the stretch uh, bogey in 15, knocking it over the green in the pond kind of, Wrong club, wrong decision. Young player, I, I made right. a little bit of a mental error in the in the shot that I tried to play, uh, but then I turned around and birdied sixteen and seventeen, and and basically and burned the edge on eighteen uh, for birdie to what would have been to tie the lead at the moment. Mo came in, made that same putt uh, for birdie, so I ended up losing that event by two. But uh, that was probably my my best chance to win the tournament, and uh, and and the most exciting. I mean, being a young player at the time, I think I was. Uh, maybe uh, 27 years old. So a young player at the time and having a chance to win the Masters, playing alongside a good friend of mine and David Duvall, who had that same putt that Mark made. Correct. He missed it and lost by one. So, you know, playing alongside one of my good friends and, and we finished uh, second and fourth. Yeah, that, the, the Masters is always special because it's the first major of the year and it sort of gives everybody that, that one opportunity to get out there and, and put something in the bag. Did, did you always look at the masters as the tournament you wanted to win, or was it more the U S open for you for, considering where you grew up? I felt like the U S open gave me the best, you know, early in my career, I felt like the U S open or the British open gave me the best chances to win a major championship. Um, but I probably never got more excited about an event than I did Augusta you know, about the masters just because it was Augusta national. It had the history of the tournament at the same course each and every year. And you, you kind of go around the course and you, reimagine all the shots that you've seen on TV or throughout history that have been played on that golf course. And it's just a special place. It's unlike anywhere else. And, and so I got more excited to go, to go play that event. Um, plus it was a little bit of a, you had to make some birdies there. There was chances for Eagles. I mean, going to the U S opens, like, you know, basically sitting outside the principal's office, knowing that you're going to get paddled. <laughs> I mean, you're going to get your ass kicked. And so you don't really get that excited about a U.S. Open. Yeah. You just kind of have a look on your face all week, like, you know, please, God, let me get through this and, and survive. So, Well, it's funny you say that because as fans, like as golf fans, we love 
the excitement of the back nine at Augusta because literally anything can happen. You mentioned you can either make an eagle on 15 and hit it too long and knock it in the water or do what Sergio did right. a few years ago and spin three wedges in there as the defending champion. Uh, but the, the Open, the U.S. Open is different because it is survival, right? No one, no one enjoys their U.S. Open experience. They get through their U.S. Open experience. And it feels like exactly. it's totally different at Augusta where, okay, you feel like you, you need to go on some sort of a birdie barrage on those final six or seven holes to have a chance. Yeah, I, I think uh, Lee Jansen told me kind of the first time I played Augusta, he's like, I'm telling you right now, you know, they say the tournament starts on the back nine on Sunday. He goes, it's amazing. If you go out and shoot three under on the back nine on Sunday, no matter where you're at the field, you're going to kind of finish off a pretty solid tournament and kind of kept an eye on that through, through my career. And it's, it's pretty true. I mean, you can be in the middle of the field, but you play the back nine, three under and you all of a sudden you finish 18th, you know, and yeah. if you're in 18th position, you play the back nine, three under, you, you know, you might finish six. So there's just a lot that can happen. And I think the greatest par fives in the world, are reachable. They're very risk reward. You can make three and you can make seven. Those are the par fives that we all enjoy playing. Nobody likes playing a 620 yard par five. I mean, all that does is all that does is make the yardage on your scorecard, you know, 7,400 yards, but they're not exciting holes. They're not great golf holes. They're difficult, but a great golf, a great par five, in my opinion, is, is reachable for most of the field, if not all the field but there's a risk reward. And I think 13 and 15 fit that bill uh, perfectly. And uh, uh, you know, it's, that's what makes Augusta so exciting. Yeah. You mentioned Lee Jansen and give him all the credit in the world. And he's, you know, I, I've told him he's a nice guy. Whatever I think of Lee Jansen as a two-time U S open champion. The only thing I think of is man, he took two away from pain. You know, 93 <laughs> at Baltusrol and 98 at Olympic. It felt like both of those years that Payne Stewart was going to win those mate, win those opens. And Lee came out of nowhere two times yeah. to sort of snake those things away from pain. Uh, he's a tough player, great short game, just a guy that knows how to get in the hole and, he and Payne were, were good friends as well. So uh, I'm sure there was a little banter and, and uh, Lee doesn't have a problem kind of like, you know, Payne was really good at sticking the needle in and, and sensing weakness. Oh, yeah. Like he, if he, if he yeah. would jab and jab and jab, and if he sensed that sense that he was getting on your nerves, he would be ruthless. I mean, never stop. So you had to kind of either give it back or, uh, or just take your punishment. But uh, Lee's got a little of that in him too. He likes to, he likes to ride you and, and irritate if he if he gets the opportunity, and so I'm sure uh, I'm sure he let Payne know about it plenty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell you what, why don't we take another break here? When we come back, we'll talk about your U.S. Open win in, in 2003 and those trophies behind you. I have some questions about some <laughs> Presidents Cups and Ryder Cup situations. Yeah. Uh, stay with us. We're back with Jim Furyk right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. With options like Blind Spot Assist and Active Lane Keeping Assist, plus MBUX Voice Command technology for directions, weather forecasts, comfort control, and more, Mercedes-Benz can be ready to go the extra mile. I use it every time I head to the golf course. The handling is amazing, the ride is smooth, and trust me, you never run out of space. Thanks again to Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. All right, back with more golf talk with Jim Furyk on this episode of Have Forgotten History. So we talked about the Masters, but of course, your crowning achievement in terms of major play was your U.S. Open win in 2003 at Olympia Fields outside Chicago. Did you have sort of any feeling going in that week that, hey, my game's in pretty good shape and I, I might be able to bag my major? Yeah, uh, I had a little chip on my shoulder, too, going into that week. But uh, my three previous events, 
leading up, I were all top 10 finishes. Uh, I want to say my last event before going there was the Byron Nelson. Felt great about my game. And I was using this putter at the time. Uh, there was a company called like Dogleg Wright. I think they made the hog putter, but this was – yeah. It didn't have the big fat shaft. In my week off, on like Monday or Tuesday, my week off for the U.S. Open, they deemed that this putter, USJ deemed this putter was illegal. So it had like a an aiming device, like it was a it was a steel putter, but it had an aluminum attachment on it that was used for alignment, and uh, kind of made this nice long line and a T on the top of my putter, and I was rolling the ball beautifully, and all of a sudden this putter was illegal. So and I found out maybe Wednesday or Thursday before the U.S. Open. I went to the U.S. Open without a putter. Basically, I had a couple extras in my bag, knew I wasn't going to use them, and I started messing around. Uh, at the time, I represented the Hogan Company and started messing around with some putters, and we pulled the shaft, which I really liked, out of this putter that I was using, stuck it in a, a Bettinardi putter at the time, a baby Ben, and uh, I just kept taking it in. A gentleman named Dean Teagle makes all my equipment. I kept taking it in the Hogan trailer, and we just kept like messing around with it, grinding a little weight off of it trying to get it to sit right, trying to get the shaft lean right. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I mean, I just kept messing around with this putter until I thought I got it right. First term I ever played with it, I won the U.S. Open. But I went into that U.S. Open playing great, but I'll say I was a little pissed off that that putter was illegal and I had a chip on my shoulder. So it was like a an event that I was thinking, like, I'm playing good enough to win and, and, I'm, and I'm mad. Uh, got off to a lousy start. I shot like two over on my first – first side on a day where the scores are really low. And then I came in with maybe four or five under on the second side, and got myself in position and, and rest was history. That's a remarkable sort of turn of events because we all know how mental this game is. And so, yeah, of course you'd be ticked. Like how did you sort of deal with the fact that you're going to go out there and, and, and play in a major with a putter you've never had in the bag before? Well, I will say that I, at that time of my career, I switched putters a lot. So okay. it, it, I have played, professional events in my career where I played four different putters for four different rounds. Uh, <laughs> I've had, I've had, uh, it used to be a little bit of a really bad vice that I had, but I had like eight weeks in a row where I putted with a different putter, you know, on, on maybe the corn Ferry tour. So it was something that I did quite frequently back then, but, uh, you know, funny then past that, that putter was then deemed legal within two months of that tournament. They decided that it was a bad rule and switched it out and, and now you can have these aiming attachments, you know, tons of butters do now. Um, so it was kind of a, a, a weird little fold, but uh, did me a favor, kind of worked on my putting a lot that week. I worked on a putter. Uh, it's still actually, it's sitting right over and sits in a nice spot in my workshop. I'm kind of in my office workshop right now. So it sits in a nice spot on display. I was about to say, it probably should have a place of prominence for, uh, for, for what went through that <laughs> for week. For winning the U.S. Open, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's funny. That's a philosophy I have. Like, I, I change drivers at a whim because I always want to tell myself, it's not the club, it's the guy that's swinging it, right? Like, if, I, I, I don't ever want to think, oh, I have to have this club in my – as you can see, I have a few to choose from here because see that. Every, once see a, that. every once in a while, they're, they're all terrible. So I, But I always try and convince myself, it's never the club, it's always the guy swinging it, so it doesn't matter what the club is. With all those sets of clubs, I thought you had like three other guys you were getting ready to go play or something. Toss sadly, the it's, it's and head to the course. Sadly, it's just me, which should tell you everything about the mental state of my game. But uh, when you were coming down the finish on 18 in 2003, what was going through your mind knowing growing up in Western Pennsylvania, so close to Oakmont and, and where you grew up and, and, and knowing that, holy crap, 
all the stuff that I've talked about with my dad and my swing and all the talk about, should I change my swing or you know, all that kind of stuff? What, what, was, what were the thoughts that were going through your mind? You realized you were going to pull it off. I've never had a huge lead. So all the events I've won, I think the most I've ever had is a two shot lead and maybe once or twice in my career going to 18. Uh, here I had, I think a four shot lead. So it was a really nice stroll. I hit an iron off the tee on 18, a seven iron on the back of the green, ended up three putt to, uh, to tie the U S open record. What was going through my mind? I guess just really enjoying the, enjoying the stroll. I mean, I'd never been in that position before where I could kind of relax, let my hair down, which no hair, but I'm just, <laughs> just relax and enjoy kind of the stroll, smell the flowers and knowing that you're going to win a golf tournament. So, uh, just a lot of fun. I mean, uh, cool day, you know, us open always finished on finishes on father's day. Father's day. My mom, my mom and dad were there. They've, they've been a huge part of my career and still are. Um, my wife and my daughter were there. My daughter was 11 months old. So it was my first father's day as a father. Um, and my wife was pregnant with my son at the time, which we hadn't really told anyone. So it was just, a kind of just thinking about the moment and, and what went into it. My family being there was really special, uh, to be, to be there and enjoy it with me. And, and, uh, actually had some friends fly in as well that I, I wasn't aware at the time, but we had a, uh, we had a, a lot of fun on Sunday evening. I'll say that. I was about to say, yeah, you, you, you better. Uh, Cause there's, there's no other time <laughs> like that to, to put a cap the, on everything. At the time, the U S yeah. open trophy, when they handed it to you, it's not engraved. It doesn't have your name on it. So they gave me this giant case, gave me the trophy and the last thing the guy said is we dipped out. It was like 11 o'clock by the time I got done doing all the interviews. As right. we dipped out of uh, Olympia Fields was, all right, you got the trophy. It's not engraved. It's your job to bring it back a year from now, but make sure it's engraved and it has your name on it. And I started laughing. I was like, well, come on, man. Like, there's no way. they. You've seen all those pictures of people inscribing the trophies. Right. And we got to the house, pulled that thing out of the, out of the case, and – my name wasn't on it. Like I had to ship it off and pay to get the U S open trophy engraved, which I thought was funny. I waited like six months cause we drank a hell of a lot of beer. I think for the first six months and then eventually <laughs> slowed down and figured I better send this thing off. So it comes back engraved. Well, well, first of all, that's, a, that's a really strange story. But second of all, what was, what was the beer of choice? Iron city rolling rock. I mean, I'm going, I'm taking my Pennsylvania cues here. That was a good try, but yingling, which yingling, the oldest brewery in the country from Pennsylvania. So I grew up, my, my mom and dad are from Pittsburgh. We lived there until I was seven, but I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania in Lancaster. And, and that, uh, you know, Yingling was the beer of choice in Eastern PA. So Yingling in the summer, and then uh, I drink a little Guinness in the winter as well. Right, listen, anything, anything to keep you going through the cold winter months. Um, <laughs> so I always like to talk to people about this because I think most athletes remember what they didn't do as opposed to what they did do, right? I think that's sort of what motivates a lot of people is like, I think fear of losing is sometimes a more motivating factor than the joy of winning. And I would imagine the, if I'm, I'm just guessing here, so tell me if I'm wrong, maybe the one you'd like to have back another crack at what would be the 2008 open at Oakmont. Uh, there's three U S opens. So Wingfoot in 06, uh, yep. Oakmont 08. Uh, and then the Olympic club, uh, was that maybe 12? 2012, that yeah, a, Webb Simpson. That was, a, that was a meltdown as well. So uh, those three, those are the three, uh, the 98 Masters, the 98 British, the thorns in my side as far as, you know, yeah. things I wish I would have done. But honestly, if you said, what's the one thing that drives you more crazy than anything else in my career, it's probably uh, our record as a U.S. team in the Ryder Cup. 
I, I'm really proud of representing my country. I'm proud of putting the red, white, and blue on and wearing the flag and, and playing. Uh, I, I got the opportunity, I think, to play in maybe 16 team events. We had so much success in the President's Cup, but I was part of basically the era that that uh, didn't do well in the Ryder Cups. Uh, and so I think I was two and seven on the teams I played. And now maybe, uh, I don't know, one and one on the teams that I've helped captain. So uh, it, it uh, it's a thorn. It's, it's, it's a part. I love the event and I, it bothers me to death that we didn't do better as a team. Yeah, if you're watching this on, on the YouTube channel, you can see all the presidents and Ryder Cup trophies behind them. Look, I agree with you. The Ryder Cup, to me, Jim, is my favorite sporting event of all time because it's the only sporting event I know of where millionaires basically play for free. Like, I don't know another place where that happens. Um, and you mentioned the, the lack of success at the, at the Ryder Cup. And I'm just curious to get your opinion as a, as a guy who's partaking in both the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup. Like, the Euros have two years to go freaking crazy and get bananas every year for the Ryder Cup. And as the Americans, we play the Ryder Cup one year against the Europeans, and then we play the President's Cup against the rest of the world. And I love the team events, and I think they're great. But I do think the idea of having to play the President's Cup every year sometimes takes away from our ability as, as the American team to be sharp and focused and as sort of jazzed up as the Euros are about the Ryder Cup. Well, I'll li- I mean, I'll listen and – I mean, that's a theory, but we shouldn't I'm get good at tired. theories. Yeah, we shouldn't get tired just because we're playing the President's Cup. I and mean, we're definitely not unmotivated. I, I mean, I've seen those guys in the locker room and, and how upset they are uh, with the results. Um, you know, the President's Cup gives us an opportunity, too, to, to work on things, to practice, yeah. to figure out pairings, who's going to mesh, who's going to play well together. Uh, it, it gives us an opportunity to do it more often. And, and uh we should gain a lot of experience out of that president's cup that should help us in the Ryder cup. You know, I, I liken it to, you know, early on in my career in the president's cup, there were a lot of years where I, I think the, pre, the, the international team had a stronger team. I mean, you look at the world rankings and top to sure. bottom, they, uh, they had better teams on paper than we did. Uh, I think our experience in the Ryder cup uh, helped a lot to kind of get us over the hump and, and we started winning that event. Now you look on paper and we have the stronger team. We have the deeper team. Uh, I like it. We, we always seem to play loose in the President's Cup. We've won the President's Cup. We, we have a, yeah. a great record. It's like 10-1-1 one, one or something like that or, or whatever it may be. We're, we're playing kind of with house money. I look at the guys and they're yeah. loose. You know, they, they, we've been here before. We've won this event. The pressure's on the other team and the guys go out and they play loose. And when we get to the Ryder Cup, that's not the case. The guys, you know, we get criticized a little bit as an American team for not caring or not maybe not wanting it bad enough. And the Europeans do, you know, there's theories out there that they get along with each other better than we do, which is not really the case. There, there's a bunch of different theories, but ultimately what I see is our guys play tight. You know, they, yeah. they want it and uh, they're not out there playing with house money. And, you know, Davis did a good job at Hazel team kind of Asking the guys, hey, get out there and show off. Treat it like a President's Cup. Go have fun. Enjoy yourself. But, man, let it all hang, hang loose. You know, there's no, no reason to play tight. He did yeah. a good job kind of decompressing the situation, and, and the guys responded and played really well. The other thing I would say that the Europeans do really, really well, among other things, obviously they've played very well. Their captains have done a good job putting them in good situations. Their home events, we get to set the golf courses up. So we're going to set Hazeltine up, you know, in 16 right. to, to fit our guys. We did a very good job of that. They did a good job in 2018 of setting France up 
you know, Le Golf National to, to fit their guys. But the one thing the Euros do really well is they usually play, uh, they always play a Ryder Cup at a venue where they play a European tournament. So the guys know the golf right. course really well. Uh, at Le Golf National, they had over 280 rounds of experience. We had eight. So yeah. they know the golf course well. They know the setup well. When we play an event here in the U.S., we pick major championship venues. Well, you know what? Their guys ju have just as much experience around those golf courses as we do. And I think we lose a bit of that home field advantage. Um, and I'm going to say this, our, our next best opportunity, our best opportunity to win on foreign soil. And in order for us to turn this around, we not only have to you know, take care of our house and win at home, but we're going to have to go to Europe and we're going to have to win something we haven't done in 25 years. Our best chance is going to be in Italy. I guess that's going to be now in uh, 2023. Um, right. They're still finishing up the golf course. They haven't had an Italian open there. They're not going to have as much experience around that course uh, like they did in the past at the Belfry and Valderrama and the K Club and Celtic Manor, um, La Golf National. They're not going to have the experience around this course. So it's a great opportunity for us as an American team to go over there and, uh, and try, to, you know, try to change the tide. And then we'll see what happens uh, this fall when they go back to Whistling Straits for the Ryder Cup that was postponed, obviously, from a year ago. Jim, I could sit here for hours and talk to you, but uh, we don't want to take up any more of your time. But real quickly, before I let you go, because you mentioned I let my hair down, I have no hair. One of my favorite things is when you or Stuart Sink finish a round when it's been sun for four days, you take the cap off and shake hands. Who's got the better dome tan when it's all said and done when the cap comes off, you or Stewie Sink? You're saying who has the whiter head? Correct. Please let it be Stuart. Please. Honestly, we need, because I've seen it. If mine's that white, I'm really, I feel terrible. I'm going to have to start using some self tan or something, but I know it's bad. I know uh, I like to, to tease my wife and tell her, no, no, no. It's just the way the cameras reflect off the gray hair. It makes it look whiter than it is. And she just laughs and shakes her head and says, no, it, it's that bad. So. No, um, I, I think it's I think it's Stewart. His looks like a polarized cap. There's there's no question about it. So he's a good man. I hope I I hope he hears me say that. He'll uh, he'll rid me a little bit in the locker room. But uh, it's not good either way. You know what? It's it's like the word. You know, now we're we're just betting on who's the worst of the worst. Is is all you're really doing? <laughs> Listen, I'm holding on to this like grim death. So we'll see what <laughs> happens. Jimmy, always good to talk to you, my friend. And hopefully the Steelers have a good season for you. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. So thanks to Jim Furyk for being with us and uh, once again showing his passion for being a Steelers fan and hoping that his dome tan is not as bad as Stuart Sink's. It isn't. Stewie's is the worst. But I had to ask him anyway. Coming up next, we're changing gears a little bit on Half Forgotten History. It is not only about the Masters in Season 3, but it's also about the draft. And one of the names that you'll hear go off Thursday night, the board, very early is the quarterback from Alabama, Mac Jones. He'll join us next week to talk about what his expectations are for his draft experience right here on Half Forgotten History.